Well, good morning. As you've guessed, I'm not Father Lee. I'm Alex Fogelman, and I'll be filling in for Father Lee this morning as he is preaching down in Alabama. And to begin, let's open in a word of prayer. O God, who taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending to them the light of your Holy Spirit, grant us by the same Spirit to have a right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his holy comfort. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. So we're picking up this week on the third article of the Apostles' Creed on the Holy Spirit. And just a brief word about where this falls into the creed. As you've probably guessed so far, the articles of the creed are not arranged in a sort of random, haphazard order, Um, but both historically and theologically, lots of care has been taken to put the right words in the right places. Um, And so, particularly in the article on the Holy Spirit, what we see is the connection, a more explicit connection between God the Father and God the Son, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, now being um, uh, manifested and appropriated in the life of the church. So the articles following uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit, come all the articles on the church, um, baptism, resurrection, eternal life, all these sorts of things. So in the Holy Spirit, what, we, what we're going to see and what we're going to talk about um, today in the, in the next couple of questions are how the, the life of God in the, the Trinity, how the life of God um, becomes related to the life of the church, how we, the church, become a part of the life of God, uh, how we become connected to God uh, in the Holy Spirit. So, first of all, question, we'll begin with question 81. Who is the Holy Spirit? God, the Holy Spirit, is the third person in the one being of the Holy Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son, and equally worthy of our honor and worship. God the Holy Spirit is the third person in the one being of the Holy Trinity. What does that mean? I like questions, so you gotta, you gotta do them. Third person. What does it mean by third person? There's a first and a second, okay? And we've got one being, so we've got certain kind of numbers, first, second, and third, and then we've got another kind of number going on, one being. All right? What's going on there? What is the difference between these kind of numbers? We have a first, second, and third person, uh, and then we've got another kind of number. One being means one centers of consciousness, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, a good, a good, a good modern philosopher's way of way of putting that. <laughs> Centers of consciousness. Um, yeah, we can say that. The the um, the point to note is that they're using 
numbers in different ways, right? Where in one way you're talking about the being of God, that you're using the number one in that sort of way to talk about that there's one God and, and only one God. Um, and this is a sort of ancient Jewish Christian belief that there's, just, there's one God and no others. And then, of course, as you've been talking about, uh, Jesus changes everything. And when Jesus starts talking about praying uh, to the one he calls the Father, uh, and yet saying things like, the, the Father and I are one, then we, we have some new, new things to deal with. And even historically speaking, this becomes the first sort of problem that Christians deal with. How is the Son related to the Father? Uh, and so, just a fun fact, we pray what's called... I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but it's called the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. Nicene Constantinople. Who knows what's, what's the difference there? Why do we say that? We sometimes just call it the Nicene Creed, and that's true. But in the Creed of Nicaea was in 325. That's the big debate about Arius, right? Um, the actual creed from 325 it has most of the same stuff for God the Father, God the Son, and then it just finishes by saying, and the Holy Spirit, full stop. None of the other stuff we say, the Lord, the giver of life, so on and so forth. 325, that's just not there yet. By 381, the Council of Constantinople, we have what we have in our creed with all this. So in that roughly 50-year time span, we have what we have is people saying, okay, now if we can... We've got this way of understanding God the Father and God the Son. Um, who's this Holy Spirit? What's, that, what's going on there? Is that a, another person? Is that another... Are we going to talk about the Spirit in the same way we're going to talk about Christ? So some of the same logic and, and theological thinking that go into understanding who the Son is then gets raises a new problem. Well, what are we going to do about this one whom Jesus calls the Spirit? And uh, as we'll see, there's a number of names that um, are referred to in the Holy Spirit. So God is the Holy Spirit, third person in the one being, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and the Son, and equally worthy of our honor and worship. So co-equal and co-eternal. Co-equal meaning What? In what sense are they the same? Not lesser. Yes. Not lesser. Even though we say third person. So by third, we don't mean lesser. Right? And same way with co-eternal. This is, uh, it would be another way of saying there was never a time when the spirit was not. Right? There was, uh, this is the same sort of uh, logic that got worked out uh, in the debates with Arius. Um, uh, part of the, the, the theological thinking that came out there was there was never a time when the Father was without the Son and the Spirit. Because uh, otherwise that would mean what? God changed at a certain point of time and then he, then he did, went on and did other things. Uh, so we say the, the, the the Spirit is co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father and the Son, and equally worthy 
of our honor and worship. Uh, the Spirit is something that both we worship in, we worship in the Spirit, as well as worship the Spirit as a part of the one being of God. So we have these, um, all, these, all these ways of thinking through what it means to say that the Holy Spirit is, um, of, is, is, is God, right? Not just something that comes out of God, something produced by God, right? But is in some way co-eternal, co-equal with God. Yeah, yeah. What, what is proceeding from the Father? Yes, great question. So this is the way... Um, right. I, I told somebody to ask me about the, uh, the filioque and why we... Um, I don't know if, you, if you've been to other churches that say the creed. Is this, is this where, you're, where you're getting? I mean, I thought we were going to you know, be there in about 30 minutes. But uh, let's just get there uh, right now. Uh, <laughs> so uh, one of the fun things about being at Christ Church uh, is that when we say the Nicene Creed, we don't say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son in Latin, filioque. Uh, and that's a good way to signal, you know, find the outsiders, right? Because they're like, and the Father and the Son. Oh, am I the only one that said that? Um, and so we do that for uh, ecumenical reasons, because in the original Greek text in the fourth century, it did not say, and the son. Um, there's a little note, there's a, in the catechism, there's a little note on that in the Nicene Creed. It's one of the, the appendices in the, somewhere in the back. Uh, there's a little note on that. Um, so it was not part of the original creed uh, when, we, when, uh, when that was developed. Um, but there's a certain thinking that emerges in the fourth century that talked about the Father being um, both from the Father and from the Son. Um, in, I think it's Romans 8 9, um, Paul can talk about in the same verse the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. So there's, there's a way of thinking about that that understands theologically how the Son can be both from the Father and from the Son. In a lot of ways, this is articulated is that the Holy Spirit is the, is the bond between Father and Son. So Augustine famously, in finding analogies for not for the Trinity, but for how three things can be one, uses the, uses the analogy of the, the lover, the beloved, and the love that binds them, the bond or the vinculum or um, some of the words, or in some cases he'll say charity itself. The Holy Spirit is, is charity. Um, so what he's getting at is a way of saying, um, how are these two connected? Are, you know, the Father and the Son, just these two separate beings. And so one of the things he's trying to do is articulate the unity of Father, Son, and Spirit and trying to find analogies for, again, how three things are one. Um, so the, 
the response from uh, particularly Greek-speaking theologians, first of all, they didn't like the addition to the creed, don't go changing creeds, generally not a great idea. Uh, but then the second thing was that it confused for them the, the relations in the Trinity. So there's this, uh, there, from their perspective, it said, we, well, we had a clear understanding of how the difference between um, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is unbegotten, right? There's nobody that's begetting the Father. The Son is begotten of the Father. So we, that language is clear, right? We can understand that a little clearer. There's an unoriginated being, the Father, and then there's a begotten, so an unbegotten, begotten. Then now, how, how does the Spirit relate to this? Well, some of the language is procession. The, the Spirit proceeds from the Father, like um, Spirit or breath proceeds from a mouth. So if the analogy for the Son was um, the, the Son is the Word of God, the Son is, is spoken, in Trinitarian theology, they'll say, well, that's, that's a way of saying, you know, the thought and the verbal word are both same and different, right? There's unity and distinction. They're trying to get at this, well, how can these things be the one being, yet two persons? So they'll use the analogy for the sun. They'll say the, the word as the, uh, as the uh, spoken Word of God. So Christ is the Word of God. The Son, Spirit, proceeds. Another word for spirit in both Greek and Latin is, is, is breath or wind or, or these sorts of words. So uh, spirit as the, as the breath of God. So proceeding just refers to that kind of, of, of motion. And what it does is it preserves the the whole exercise of Trinitarian theology is preserving the mystery that we call God. And that's a way of saying that there's, there's both unity, there's unity in the being of God, there's, God is, there's one God, um, and yet Scripture provides us this language of talking about what are the sort of particular operations of, of each person of the Trinity. So finding ways to what is, what is common, what is held in common um, in the Trinity, and what are the sort of um, unique distinctions or peculiar aspects. So that's one of the ways in which that, re that language develops. It's just to say what is common and what is, what is distinct um, in the Spirit. That's probably a bit... Uh, too much for a Sunday morning. Uh, there's more we could say about that, but that's part of the part of the the thinking that goes goes in this is thinking about how do we talk about this mystery that is greater than that that which we can imagine, and yet be faithful to the language of Scripture uh, in in which God has revealed Himself. Yeah. Yes, so the question is, does, does hierarchy help or, or hinder our, our language about how we talk about God? Um, I think in our culture, it requires a lot of explanation. 
um, especially in an American culture um, in which egalitarianism is, uh, democracy is sort of uh, the guiding assumptions about what we think, how we think about appropriate order. Um, in most civilizations, and certainly in, in classical Greek and Roman culture, hierarchy is not perceived of as, as a bad thing, a negative thing. Um, they understand it more as sort of right order, proper order, rather than um, I'm more powerful than you, uh, that sort of thing, even though there is that, of course. Um, so um, early theologians have no problem, have less of a problem, talking about hierarchy within the Trinity. Um, so even the language of, of, of origin, uh, origin, unoriginated father, begotten, unbegotten father, begotten son, father, even father-son language, there's, a, there's some kind of hierarchy in that. And that the son, and as, as Jesus says, uh, in this places like the Gospel of John, um, I do whatever the Father is doing. The Father's working in me. I don't do my own will. I do the will of the Father. That has all the language of, of subordination, of, of hierarchy. And this is what gives rise to the huge debates of the fourth century. Um, and so is the question then becomes, well, if there's this sort of distinction, is that a hierarchy of... Power, you know, power, being, ontology? Is it, a, is it a question about hierarchy in that way? And the whole push of, of Nicene theology, people like Athanasius, um, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil of Caesarea, these, these, these theologians, the push was to say, yes, if there, there's a distinction, but it's not a distinction of, of being. There's not this sort of um, divine principle way up there that we can't get to. Then there's the Son, who's a little more clear to us, and then there's a the Holy Spirit, who's even further down and more like a creature. So there, the push is to say, how do we think about the order um, within the Trinity without collapsing that into a hierarchy of being? This is the highest being. Then we've got a sort of second principle of being, a third principle Somewhere down here, you find us saying, "What are we doing? Help!" Um, so part of the part of the um, part of the push is to is to think about is to reconceive hierarchy in within the language of equality, and so that's why we use the language of there's there's certain ways in which we talk about a hierarchy. If there's a father son hierarchy, or a father spirit. Um, proceeding, if that's conceived of as a hierarchy, we can, we can hold that language as long as we remember and maintain that they are co-equal, co-eternal. Um, it's not like the Father existed first in time, and then came the Son, and then came the Spirit, or whatever. These are co-equal in being, co-eternal in time, and and then as the, as the last part of this question says, worthy of our honor and worship. Um, you don't worship something that's not God. Uh, and so, 
And likewise, and another argument for the Holy Spirit's divinity uh, in antiquity is that, well, we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how we are reborn, re- regenerated. We can't be saved by something that's not God. Only, the principle is only God can save, and therefore, if we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, that must mean that the Spirit is equally worthy of honor and worship because only something that is God can save and be something that is worshiped. Does that make sense? Is this, so the language of hierarchy is, is, is a tricky one. It's fairly fraught in our, in our cultural moment. Um, but if we can take time like we do in catechesis to think carefully about these things, then we can, we can think about... Um, ways to appropriately talk about distinction and unity, what's common and, and what's sort of distinct. Okay, next question, 82. What principal names does the New Testament give to the Holy Spirit? Jesus names the Holy Spirit paraclete with the one alongside. This signifies comforter, guide, counselor, advocate, and helper. Other names for the Holy Spirit are Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, and Spirit of Truth. Again, this is a way of getting at what does, the, what does Scripture say about the Holy Spirit, and how can our thinking about God be primarily shaped by thinking about Scripture? Uh, theological thinking is primarily an exercise in reading Scripture well. So we attend carefully to what Scripture says. Uh, And especially, you'll see the Scripture passages there. John 14 is that great great passage where Jesus is saying, it's good good that I'm going away to the Father, and that means I'm sending along the paraclete to come and help you. So paraclete, as it says there, the one who comes alongside... Para, meaning alongside, like parallel, comes alongside. And then cleat, kaleo, uh, has, a, has a root in the word call. So it comes alongside and speaks with you. Uh, it comes alongside calling to you. And so that's all this language of comforter, guide. A comforter comes alongside you in, in your, your mourning and your suffering and gives you strength with fortification, comfort with fortification, strengthening you. Um, and as, as Romans 8 talks about, the spirit, um, spirit is groaning with us in, in prayer. Uh, the Spirit is our guide, a guide in truth and wisdom. Uh, the Spirit um, illuminates our path. Um, it brings us... Um, it um, lightens our path, as, as the language of, of the Psalms will say about, about the law. Our counselor and advocate and helper, a lot of these have both um, sort of pedagogical type of implications, as well as there's, there's some law court imagery in here. If we're, we're convicted of sin, we're on, the, we're, we're, we're on judgment for sin. The Spirit is our advocate uh, in the courtroom. At the same time, uh, the Spirit also, as we'll see in the next one, 
convicts us as well of sin, right? So the, the Spirit in, in all of these ways, in both comforting, guiding, counseling, advocating, and helping, um, in, in every way there's a movement towards sanctification. Um, and, and a lot of theologians will think about one of the, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is make holy. It, it gives, it does what it is. The Holy Spirit makes people holy. Um, and so that's, that's one of the things that's going on here in all of these particular words. The Spirit is, is sanctifying us, drawing us closer, whether that's through um, comforting, guiding, counseling, all of these things. Uh, what the Spirit is doing is is leading us into life with God, uh, leading us into holiness. Other names for the Spirit are Spirit of God, Spirit of the Father, Spirit of Christ. This is, again, uh, and Spirit of Truth. Um, this is, again, getting into what we were thinking about earlier with how the, how the Spirit can be both Spirit of the Father and Spirit of Christ. The, the biblical language for it um, is there. And so what we're doing is thinking about well, who, who is this spirit? How can Christ have a spirit and the Father have a spirit and yet there be one spirit? Questions on that? Names, uh, names of the spirit. Okay, let's keep moving. What are 83? What are the peculiar particular ministries of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit imparts life in all its forms throughout God's creation, unites believers to Jesus Christ, indwells each believer, convicts believers of sin, applies the saving work of Jesus to the believer's life, guides the church into truth, fills and empowers believers through spiritual fruit and gifts given to the church, and gives understanding of the scripture which he inspired. Uh, and here, I would encourage you just to dwell with this throughout the week and, and go through each one of these, um, because this is, in many ways, one of the questions that really um, articulates in small form the many operations of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. So, and you can see there's almost a, a kind of movement to the way this this question is laid out and imparts life in all its forms throughout God's creation. So as we say in the creed, the Lord, the giver of life, right? Um, and even in Romans 8, we'll use the language, the spirit of life. So in, in the spirit is where life in all its forms in creation comes from. It unites believers to Jesus Christ. This is um, another one of, the, one of the important parts about Trinitarian theology. We have God the Father, the sort of source of, of everything. Uh, we have God the Son, uh, God uh, in, in, who becomes incarnate in human form. Well, how do we, how do we get connected to these people? What's the, what's the means by which our lives become joined to the life of God. 
and this is, this is one of the things that the, that the Spirit does. The Spirit unites Christians to Jesus Christ. We become co-sons and daughters with Christ. We share in the sonship of Christ by being joined through the Spirit's work in baptism. And that is the Spirit's power uniting Christians uh, within the church that gives us the, the ability to, to share in this life. So if the, if the Spirit we talked about is, is, the, is the bond of charity between Father and Son, it then also becomes the bond of charity that unites both the church and unites the church to God. It's that, the bond of connection there. So the, the Spirit does this bonding, uniting, uh, uniting work. And how does it do this? It indwells each believer uh, in baptism. You, um, you receive the Holy Spirit in this way. Even though we can still say the Holy Spirit is at work giving life to all things, the Holy Spirit takes on a peculiar operation in baptism through, making, through giving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in this way. Uh, it convicts believers of sin. The Holy Spirit um, works on our conscience in this way. Uh, it serves as a, as a guide and illuminating what in us tends to be dark, tends to be murky, tends to be unknown. Um, the Holy Spirit works on us in this way, um, bringing to light the things that we otherwise couldn't see, whether about ourselves or um, other parts of our life. So it indwells, it convicts, it applies the saving work of Jesus to the believer's life. Jesus dies, he rises from the dead, conquers sin in the grave, um, overcomes, overcomes hell. Great, what does all this have to do with us? <laughs> how, do, how, does, cause how does one participate in that saving power? This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings us into it, makes those saving effects, brings that saving work of Christ into the human life. It applies the saving work of Jesus to the believer's life. It also guides the church into truth, fills and empowers believers through spiritual fruit and gifts given to the church. Uh, this is, we'll see this in the next couple of, couple of sections, talking about the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in the church. The Spirit imparts its many and diverse gifts um, and it, it empowers believers to accomplish the works of Christ. This is part of Christ's ongoing presence in the world is through the Spirit's working in the body of Christ in the world. And then uh, the Spirit gives understanding of the Scripture which He inspired. We talked about um, even the word inspiration, right? comes from inspiring, that Spirit being in the, the text. Um, and so we say that the, 
the Holy Spirit inspires Scripture and therefore guides the church in its understanding of Scripture. So we have, we, uh, again, it's sort of like the, the, we talked about with the saving work of Christ. That is sort of the objective reality. Christ has defeated death in the grave. The saving work of Christ is there, just as the scriptural text is there in an objective sense. But then how do we become a part of that? What does, how is a person appropriated into the saving work of Christ? How does a person read scripture well? To read the inspired scripture well, we need to be guided by the Holy Spirit. And um, that happens in a number of ways. The Spirit has been guiding the church throughout the ages. Um, the, the Spirit um, gives, imparts truth uh, wherever truth is to be found. Um, and so that's one of, the, one of the main ways that the Spirit is working within the church, giving gifts to the church, is through inspiring the work of reading Scripture. Yeah. Yeah, great question. What, was, what does it mean for the Spirit to guide the church uh, into all truth? Um, on the one hand, it could seem to mean that whatever happens is the work of the Spirit, right? And I don't quite want to, quite want to say that. And I think that's one of the things you're getting at. Because um, then we, we have to say, well, just whatever happens, we just call that the work of the Spirit. Whatever, whatever goes under the name of church um, uh, is just justified by calling it the work of the Spirit. And that's not what's, what's going on here. Guiding the, guiding the Spirit, guiding the church into truth is... Um, is as much an eschatological statement uh, as anything. So what it means is to say that, that, that God is faithful to the church ultimately, in this, and the Spirit is guiding the church into the fullness of truth, um, despite uh, the many divisions and fractions and awful things that church people get up to. Um, so what it means is it's a, uh, in some way, a, a statement about divine providence, about how God is working, even when ostensibly it seems he's not. Um, right. Yes. Yeah. That, yeah. It's a good, a good point of reference the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Um, that's right. Even though it looks as if they are, um, it's, in that, it's in that process that we see the Spirit working to bring the church into all truth. Um, and, uh, yeah, Yes, that's right. There's this, um, uh, almost a sort of paradox between there's what Jesus has been doing with the disciples 
for these three years. Uh, and they are being led into truth, right? Jesus is the truth, and they're there with the truth. Um, but it, it takes the Holy Spirit to understand that as truth. Again, it's the, the Spirit's one of the, you can see one of the, uh, one of the works of the Spirit being to uh, illuminate um, believers, to see the truth as truth. Is right because they'll say, well, lots of people saw Jesus, uh, but they didn't understand him rightly. They didn't interpret Christ rightly. Um, they saw him as a uh, teacher or uh, rabbi or a crazy person. <laughs> uh, but to see Christ as the Son of God um, takes this illumination from the Holy Spirit. So that's, yeah, that'd be another way of, of saying that the the Spirit leads the church uh, into all truth. Okay, let's keep on moving. Question 84. How does the Holy Spirit relate to you? Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit to make Jesus known to me, to indwell and empower me in Christ, to bear witness that I am a child of God, to guide me into all truth, and to stir my heart continually to worship and to pray. This sort of con- it continues what we've been saying. Um, the Holy Spirit in this making Jesus known to us and also bringing us into the life of God. Uh, the, the indwelling, the Spirit dwelling within, living within us, and empowering us in Christ. Giving us that force, uh, that, that life-giving force that the Spirit is, but bringing that actually, making that actually operative uh, into our lives. It bears witness that I'm a child of God. Again, that, that advocate sort of testimony language that the, that the paraclete is, um, the counselor and the advocate, a bearing witness, testifying that this person is a, a child of God guides into all truth, and stirs our hearts continually to worship and to pray. The Spirit, again, in a, in a sanctifying work, one of the things that sanctifies us is worship and in prayer. And the Spirit often has this, um, when you have that, that conviction of, I need to pray, or, just, or prayer just spontaneously erupts, all of those sorts of Promptings to prayer are the work of the Holy Spirit, um, drawing you in, inviting you into the life of God, uh, to to draw in deeper into to knowing God. So the Spirit works in us in this way. It calls us, comes alongside and calls us and invites us to worship and to prayer. Um, and indeed, we can say we would not worship at all if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit prompting us inviting us, calling us into prayer. How then do you receive the Holy Spirit? Question 85, how do you receive the Holy Spirit? The scriptures teach that through repenting and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, I am forgiven my sins and dwelled from then on by the Holy Spirit, given new life in Christ by the Spirit, and freed from the power of sin so that I can be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Right, so here we are. So baptism, especially repentance and baptism, that's when we are the, the moment when we become indwelt by the Holy Spirit, uh, the moment of regeneration, rebirth. If the Spirit is the power of life, the Spirit in baptism gives us life in Christ, true life. And that's why we can talk about, the, and the Scripture uses the language of talking about um, uh, being dead in our trespasses and being brought to life in Christ. Um, that's the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of life, true life working in us through uh, the regenerating um, regeneration of baptism. So we're forgiven our sins, indwelt from then on by the Holy Spirit, given new life in Christ by the Spirit, and freed from the power of sin, the forgiveness of sin. That's that, the, that deep abiding sin, the power of sin uh, that um, we inherit uh, from Adam. And the, the power of forgiveness in, in Christ that we receive in baptism frees us from that power of sin, washes away that power of sin, uh, and, and enables us um, to walk in new life. Um, and then again, uh, number 86, what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? The fruit of the Holy Spirit is the very character of Jesus developing in us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we're thinking about what the Spirit does. What is the Spirit doing? As we saw in the last one, forgives us of the power of sin. And now, in the church, in the life, in the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit empowers us it gives us the very character, uh, the very virtues of Christ. It enables us to, um, to actually live in the kinds of ways that Christ live. It makes Christ's life, the things that Christ did, the kind of things that Christ wanted, uh, the kinds of things that he did, uh, it makes those actions um, and character available for believers in the church. It enables them to live um, with joy, with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. The Spirit makes this, makes Christ's life available to us. 87, what are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? The many gifts of the Holy Spirit include faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment of spirits, other languages, administration, service, encouragement, giving, leadership, mercy, and others. The Spirit gives these to individuals as He wills. And let's just keep, let's do the last one as well. Why does the Holy Spirit give these gifts? The Holy Spirit equips and empowers each believer for service in the worship of Jesus Christ, for the building up of his church, and for witness and mission to the world. 
So the Holy Spirit gives us these, as he gives the fruit of the Spirit, we could say at a more individual level, this is how the Holy Spirit works in a person's life. When we're talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we're talking about now how the, how the Spirit gives gifts to the church as the body. Um, so how does... And we, uh, how do the various diverse ministries, Paul talks about um, in 1 Corinthians, the, the many gifts of the Spirit, yet they come from one, one Spirit. It's all the same Spirit working in each of these. And that's what grounds, that's what makes this not um, uh, just, just diversity, right? A number of different gifts doing different things, but rather what makes this a real sort of unity and distinction. Um, it gives us these multiple manifold gifts within the life of the church, but it's the same spirit working in each one. And so this is um, what ought to be a, a, a source of unity in the church, a way in which these, these many different gifts can serve God's purposes uh, in the world and in the church but the purpose is, and that's why the question is, okay, what are the gifts? Okay, but why are the gifts? Why does the Holy Spirit give us these gifts? And they, they equip and empower each believer for service and the worship of Christ. So they empower the believer for worship, first. Second, for the building up of his church, for the work of mission, for the work of of um, being the, the body of Christ uh, on earth, and thirdly, for witness and mission to the world, going out into all, into all the kingdom, uh, all of God's creation, and bearing witness to uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever we are. So the Holy Spirit equips the church for these reasons, not to say, I've got this gift, I've got this gift, um, it's not that the gifts become a source of, of pride, but the, the gifts are given so as to, um, to build up the church for the worship of Christ uh, and for mission to the world. Um, we need to wrap up. Any questions on that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the last part. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good, good question. I'll, I'll save that one for Father Lee uh, when he comes back. <laughs> um, the, the short answer is that the, the, as the, the gift of faith, um, uh, in this context, um, in a way that's meant one, one, a gift among other gifts. Of course, all believers have faith in that sense, um, the faith that one receives in baptism. That's different than the way that the faith as a, as a gift in support of the church is being talked about. So faith here is meant as, um, as a gift to the church in... Um, uh, this is the only way you talk about this, but as, as exemplars of faith faith that inspires the faithfulness in other believers. 
Um, at least in this, again, that's just a particular use of that. We could say a lot more about that. But the gift of faith as one in which you see, when you see other, when you see faithfulness in other, other believers in the church, when that inspires others to faithfulness, uh, that's one of the ways in which you can see the gift of faith as a gift of the Holy Spirit um, being at work here. It's not to say that, again, some people have faith, some people have don't. Some people don't within uh, the, the life of the church. Um, that's a, there's a general gift of, of that to all believers. Um, but then there's a peculiar gift of faith in that inspiring faithfulness. So, need to close there. Ask fatherly all, all the other questions, and uh, <laughs> we'll see you next time.